I've got a quote to start us off this, this morning. Marion, don't look at it. Shut your eyes, Marion. Don't look at it, no matter what happens. Don't look, Marion. Keep your eyes shut. Iconic lines from the climax of the 1981 classic Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. And as uh, if you can picture the scene, the Nazis are opening up the covenant. Indiana Jones and Marion are tied to a post and they're both looking away, keeping their eyes tightly shut, refusing to look into the ark as these kind of Dementor-like spirits are kind of floating in and out. And then lasers come out of the main guy's eyes and he kills all the Nazis. And then the other ones melt or combust. How did Indiana Jones know not to look into the ark? Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 6. 1 Samuel chapter 6. He must have known today's story. Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, great movie. But as with many great movies, mostly untrue. But there is a ring of truth to Indy's warning. Don't look at it. Shut your eyes. As we're going to see this morning in the second half of 1 Samuel chapter 6. In the first half, the ark, which was lost in battle to the Philistines. And if you read in chapter 5, it uh, passes from city to city until all five of the capital cities of the Philistines and their lords are brought to their knees by the wrath of God and uh, they decide to return it from whence it came give this thing back to the Israelites and uh, the first half of chapter 6 the Israelites in this little town on the outskirts of the territory of Judah in a city called Beth Shemesh lift their eyes in the midst of harvesting the wheat harvest and they see the ark coming back to them on a driverless cart pulled by two milk cows and the story goes that the cart, the cart actually parked itself outside the town of Beth Shemesh beside a rock in the field of a man named Joshua. And the people lift their eyes and are amazed and absolutely overjoyed. The ark has come back and they pick the ark up off the cart and they put it on this big rock and they break the cart up into pieces and they make a big wood pile and they offer the milk cows and they just start to worship the Lord, offering sacrifices and celebrating. And for one moment they were crying out, where is the glory? And now on the other side of that same moment, the glory has returned. The lost ark is found. But we, as the readers of this story, celebrate the return of the ark with a little bit of caution. In the seven months that the ark was in the land of the Philistines, it plagued them with hemorrhoids and tumors and mice. And while the ark was away, has anything changed about the people of God fundamentally during those seven months? God's glory departed from the land of Israel for a reason, a very specific reason, 
the people were unholy. Has that changed in seven months? The ark departed and a great blow of destruction to the people of Israel. 30,000 Israelites fell in one day. What can we expect to happen when it returns? As we stand in a moment, I want us to take heed before we read from 1 Samuel chapter 6. Because this is not some Hollywood sci-fi fantasy movie. This, in 1 Samuel chapter 6, is the very word of God. And in a world filled with half-truths and fake news and lying presidents and leaders and misleading social media, there is one thing that we can put 100% of our trust that it will not error, it will not lie, it will not mislead us. And it's this, the word of God. Because every single letter, dot, and crossed T in this book is the word of the righteous, holy creator God who the Bible tells us cannot lie. And this word is without error and will lead us to nothing but the way, the truth, and the life in Jesus Christ our Savior. And so let us remember that as we stand to read 1 Samuel chapter 6 together. Let's stand. Beginning in verse 17. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, and the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he, that is the Lord, struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck seventy men of them, or seventy and fifty thousand of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab in the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to, to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Let's pray one last time. Lord, we pray you would grip our hearts with a true abiding sense of your holiness. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning's narrative serves several different purposes 
And uh, the first is this. We're about to embark on a saga through the book of Samuel. And if you were to continue to read the book of 2 Samuel, of which the great enemy, the tormentor of God's people, over and over, chapter by chapter, uh, event by event, is the Philistines. And before we enter into that great conflict between the people of God and the Philistines who live along the coast of the Mediterranean, we see here before that all begins, number one, that the Lord can destroy the Philistines in an instant if He wants. The Lord is making that abundantly plain before we enter into this story over the next several chapters and even books. But secondly... The Lord is showing that He is the Lord of the Philistine lords and the King of the Philistine kingdoms. Long before the Philistine giant that we know by the name Goliath comes thudding into the picture in 1 Samuel chapter 16 with his terrifying weapons and hulking muscles and ungodly boasts, we have already read 1 Samuel chapter 6 where the Philistine lords have had to admit that they are nothing more than golden tumors, golden hemorrhoids in the eyes of the Lord. And their great kingdoms are nothing more than little mice colonies in the presence of the Almighty God. The Philistines are nothing to fear, not even their giants. So, the final thing that we recognize as we head into the rest of the book of 1 Samuel is that if the Philistines continue to exist and afflict the Israelites, it must be for some sovereignly good purpose that the Lord has for His people. So the question this morning is, what sovereignly good purpose does the Lord have for His people? And I think the answer to the question this story gives us is holiness. The point is this, holiness. And so we're going to explore that in three different ways this morning. Number one, holiness is the plague. Holiness is the point. And thirdly, holiness is the plan. So the ark first dealt a great blow to the Israelites, felling 30,000 of them back in chapter 4. Do you remember that? Those of you who are here, they went, they looted the house of God, carried the ark out into the battlefield, and 30,000 Israelites whoosh, wiped off the face of the earth. Then it fell, felled countless thousands, we're not told how many Philistines, in all five of their capital cities as it passed from the hands of one Philistine lord to the next. And now upon the ark's return, the plague returns with it. In some of your Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 19, it might say uh, that, uh, that the Lord struck 70 men. Some of your Bibles might say uh, that 50,000, 70 men were struck. Some of your Bibles might say 70 men and 50,000 men. I think our blue... Uh, Bibles in the pew, if you're using one of those, says 70 men, but then it has a footnote and it says, uh, the Hebrew actually says something like 50,070 men. And uh, what's going on here is not that the Bible has errors, it's that all of our translators are trying their best 
to understand what's actually really an awkward rendering of a number in the original language. And I think the best understanding of verse 19 is this. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh, for they looked at the ark of, of the Lord, and he struck some of the people, 70 men, 50,000 men. So the idea then is that 70,000 specific men of the little town of Beth Shemesh, which most assume probably couldn't have had 50,000 members in it, were struck. But then the plague spread to all the rest of the people. And 50,000 of the rest of the people were killed. What is clear is that the plague has not diminished in its veracity or violence at all since it departed the land of Israel and has now returned. Verse 19, the end says, The Lord had struck the people with a great blow. The Lord struck them with a great blow, 30,000 fall. The Lord strikes the Philistines with a great blow, countless thousands. Now the ark returns, another great blow, possibly 50,000 and 70 more men dead. And the question I want to ask is, well, let's retrace our steps here. Where did this plague get started? What was the action or the event or the activity that kicked all of this death off in the first place? If we retrace the narrative back to its source, wasn't it when they took the ark out of the house of God? Wasn't that when the blows started to fall? Number one, holiness is the plague. There is a reason why there is an outer fence to the courtyards of the house of God. There is a reason why there are curtains around the ark. There is a reason why there is an even thicker curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy of holies. There's a reason why every time the ark was moved in the history of God's people, they laid that giant curtain over the ark. In fact, there's a reason why the Bible instructed them to lay curtains over every single thing inside the house of God before it was moved in the sight of the people. Numbers 40, 20, They shall not go in to look on the holy things even for a moment, lest they die. Those curtains were protecting the people of God from His holiness. Holiness is the plague. Exodus 33.5 You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, you, I would consume you. Holiness is the plague. It doesn't matter whether you're an uncircumcised Philistine or a circumcised Jew, whether you're a drunken heathen or a church-going Sunday school teacher. If for a single moment the holiness of God should come to be among you, it would consume you. Why? Well, the Philistines at least were smart enough to figure out the reason why. Look at verse 17. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a 
guilt offering to the Lord. Why does the holiness of God consume them? Because of their guilt. Holiness is a plague because of our guilt. And we're not talking about, you know, feeling guilty as in the sense of shame that you feel and that we just need to not feel guilty anymore and that will fix our problem. We're talking about guilt as in being guilty of breaking the law of God. The law of God is what makes us holy and it's the law of God that makes us guilty. And our guilt in disobeying the righteous, holy, perfect law of the righteous, holy, perfect God is what makes us guilty and is what makes His holiness a plague upon us. On the day that you stand before the holiness of God, I wonder what you will offer up to Him for your guilt, for your law-breaking All the religions of this world are are just like the Philistines. They're just man's best guess. (laughs) That's the thing. When you read the Philistines and they're trying to figure out how to make this plague uh, leave the land, they say, perhaps, maybe, our best hope, we'll try this out. Maybe it'll work. Islam sets up a law and in the end you earn a beautiful golden hemorrhoid that you get to go offer to God. Southern churchianity establishes its own set of laws and rules. And at the end, you're presented with a golden Mickey Mouse that you now get to go offer in exchange for your guilt. All the false religions of this world help us earn guilt offerings. All these things that we hope somehow will displace our guilt before the holiness of God. Do you think that a golden hemorrhoid will do it for you? How about a golden mouse? Well, God, I didn't keep your law, but here's what I did. I set aside your law and I made my own law. And I kept all of these rules that I made up. And from them, I earned a golden hemorrhoid and a golden mouse. And now I lay them at your feet. These are my awards. A golden hemorrhoid for never getting drunk on Sundays. And a golden mouse for only cheating on my income taxes twice. Forgive my guilt, please, Lord. Derek Webb sings, What's the use in trading a law you can never keep for one you can that cannot give you anything? Friends, if you've ever lied, stolen, blasphemed the name of God, worshipped money, power, the approval of others, if you've ever disobeyed or dishonored your parents, or broken any of the several other hundred commandments in the law of God, you are guilty. And on the day that you stand before the holiness of God on His judgment throne, a plague will fall on Jew and Gentile, churchgoer and heathen alike. American, Asian, African, I don't care who you are, we are all guilty. And the question is, what will be your guilt offering on that day? Because number one, holiness is the plague. 
Well, secondly, and this is kind of the center of the story of the text here, number two, holiness is the point. It's not just the plague, but it is the point. Look with me at verse 20. The Israelites get it. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? What's the one adjective that makes these people tremble before the Lord? What's the one characteristic of God that strikes fear into their hearts? What's the defining trait that they ascribe to this God? He is holy. Holiness is the point. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Allow me to quote from the late theologian R.C. Sproul. There is only one characteristic of the Almighty God that is communicated in the superlative degree. From the mouths of angels, where the Bible doesn't simply say that God is holy, or even that He's holy, holy, but that He is holy, holy, holy. The heavenly hosts above the throne of God sing to one another an antiphonal response, a single word repeated over and over and over again, holy, holy, holy. The great desire of the people was not wrong to want to lay their eyes on the ark of God. Nor was their joy wrong in seeing the glory of God. There is great joy in beholding His glory. However, for guilty, unholy people, this glorious God is holy and He is a consuming fire. The prophet Isaiah writes, The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? And uh, lest we get confused and think that God has somehow changed from the Old to the New Testament, sometimes American Christians get this idea that this side of the cross is just howdy-doody time with the Lord. (laughs) The writer of Hebrews says, Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Holiness is the point. God is showing us what is true of Himself to the infinite degree. He is completely set apart. He cannot fellowship with guilty sinners. He is infinitely other. This is why He set up the house of God in the first place. For the ark to communicate His holiness, His otherness, His set-apartedness in the midst of a sinful people. And here they are, taking this ark, setting it up like a museum display on a rock in the middle of an open field. And as happy as that may make them feel for the moment, absolutely misses the point that the Lord, this God, this is a holy God. 
And sadly, it takes a great blow from the Lord upon the people to snap them back to their senses. Oh, yes, we've forgotten the defining characteristic of this Lord, that He is holy. In a culture that prizes authenticity and being messy and broken and sinful and you just be you and everyone needs to celebrate that. The idea that someone or something would be set apart as completely other, as completely better, as completely untouchable by your sin. Completely perfect in every way. It's just completely foreign to the world we live in. The idea that the holiness of this deity is so intense, so hot, so blazingly glorious that you will be consumed for even laying your sinful eyes upon it. It's repugnant. Probably because deep down in our hearts we're so proud that we don't want to admit that anyone or anything is better than us. But God is. And like it or not, your sin makes you Guilty, unholy, common, and unworthy to relate to the God of the universe. Imagine for a second that you were doing laundry. And uh, young men, if you don't know this, if your moms haven't taught you yet, you're supposed to separate the whites from the colors. So you're there, and you're sorting out the whites and the colors. Because obviously, when you put them in the washer together, the colors run. And the whites get all dingy and and discolored. So imagine you're doing the laundry and accidentally a brand new red sock makes it into the load with your best linens. But when they come out of the dryer, you're surprised to find that the whites are glimmering, brilliant white, brighter than they've ever been. And the red sock is a pile of ash and lint in your lint trap. That is the holiness of God with our sin. Yes, we are all sinners. Yes, we are all a mess. Our culture, though, sees that as something to celebrate. I was born this way. This is who I am. You should just love me and all of my sin and all of my mess. But at the end of time, the thing that will be celebrated and lauded and glorified and praised forever is not our sin, nor our authenticity in our mess. But holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Holiness is the point. And it's the point that the Israelites keep missing. The Lord is holy, and so they too, as the Lord's people, if they have any hope of God with us, of the Lord dwelling amongst them, they must be holy as well. Holiness is the point. They serve the Lord, this holy God, and so thus they must also be holy. Leviticus 11, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves. Make yourselves holy, therefore. Be holy, for I am holy. It's just a logic there that's progressing. Be holy, because that's who I am. 
And how has God intended to make them holy? Verse 40 of Numbers 15. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. It's obedience to the commandments of this holy God that makes his people holy. But who among us is able to keep the whole law of God? James writes, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails even in just one point, you break even one of those hundreds of commandments, you've become accountable for all of it. So now, holiness presents us with two dilemmas. Number one, holiness is a plague, and so we need a proper guilt offering for the sins of the past, of the disobediences and the ways we've broken His law if we can ever hope to stand before the glory of God and His holiness not consume us. But secondly, holiness is the point, but how can we be perfectly holy like God? (coughs) Which brings us to the final portion of today's story. Not only is holiness the plague, holiness is the point, but holiness is the plan. Look at verse 21 with me. So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to take charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged in Kiriath-Jerim, A long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So the grand experiment is over. It was a joyful notion to think that the glory of God could just dwell in the open air on a rock in a field and all the people of God could just be priests to God and make their own offerings and come before His holiness with joy and excitement. And not be cut off from his holiness. But the people had no proper offering for their sins. And the people still couldn't perfectly or even close to perfectly obey. So they pack up the grand experiment. And they go back to the old way of doing things. They throw a curtain over the ark. They appoint one man. Consecrate him, set apart Literally, the word there is they make him holy. They made holy Eleazar and they gave him charge over the ark. And we're right back where we started before 1 Samuel chapter 4. One singular priest given charge over the ark of God. One man among all the men of the earth allowed into the presence of the holy God and the rest of the people cut off from ever seeing his glory. And it's at this point that we've reached a fork in the road. Either either we remain unholy and die in the presence of God, or we somehow have to become holy and live. Either we remain unholy and die in the presence of God, or we become holy and somehow live in His presence forever. Those are the only two options. Because God is holy. He's not going to change. So we must, or rather, to put it more properly, He must change us. 
He must make us holy. Number three, holiness is the plan. Friends, there's only one being in this entire universe, in all the heavens and the earth, who is holy like the Lord our God. And it's the Lord our God. He's the only one who's holy like the Lord. The Lord alone is allowed into the glorious presence of the Lord. And so it's the Lord who somehow must come to our midst and make us to be holy just like Him. And that, brothers and sisters, is why the Lord our God had to become man. That's why Jesus Christ had to come in the flesh. Because holiness is the plague. And the Bible tells us that Jesus came to absorb all of our sin all of our uncleanness, all of our unholiness upon Himself so that the plague of God's holiness would fall on Him. And this is the amazing thing. Even though we were to throw in a thousand, a million, a bazillion bright red socks into the wash with the holiness of Jesus. When it comes out of that washer, all those socks are obliterated and His holiness is as brilliant and white and glorious as it ever has been. No matter how many crimson stains you try to smudge Jesus Christ with, His holiness is so infinite that it destroys them all. Come, the Lord says, let us reason together. Though your sins be like scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Holiness is the plague, but Jesus has offered Himself as the only guilt offering that will do away with the plague on our guilt. Not a golden hemorrhoid of our own making, not golden mice, but something way more precious, the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Holiness is the plague, but friends, holiness is the point. Jesus didn't simply come to die. Jesus came to live. And He lived a perfect life for us. You see, He alone is the only man in all of history who has kept the law of God from Alpha to Omega, from first commandment to the last, perfectly. And this is the good news because He offers that perfect obedience which we call holiness to you and I. Yes. Only one man has been consecrated to enter the most holy place, the holy of holies, not the copy here on earth, but the one in heaven. And it's Jesus Christ. But the good news of the gospel is that we can be found in Him, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see, by believing that Jesus is the Son of God, by believing that He is perfect and He alone is holy and He alone is righteous, by confessing your sin rather than trying to hide it, by trusting in Jesus as your Savior and King, this amazing thing happens. You are found in Him. And guess what? When He enters the most holy place, guess who gets to go in there too? We. He is holy. And He has come to make us holy. Thirdly, holiness 
is the plan. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ, the single holy man in the whole universe, has become our doorway into the presence of the glory of God. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened up for us through the curtain, He's drawn it back. That is through His flesh, His own body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from all that guilt, from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Brothers and sisters, day by day, we live out the truth that holiness is the plan. There is a holiness without which no man or woman will see God, the Bible tells us. As we follow Jesus Christ, as His Spirit is in us sanctifying, consecrating, making us holy, we are becoming more and more like the God that we will one day see for who He is. Because the Bible says we will, this is amazing, I don't know how it's possible, we will be like Him. We will be holy as He is holy. So let us not succumb to the patterns of this world that tell us that messiness is next to godliness. That sinfulness is true authenticity. Strive for holiness because holiness is the plan. God has put in you the spirit of Jesus Christ himself to help you to obey and to follow Jesus. One day we will all hear the booming voice over all of heaven and earth cry out, who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? You and I will have confidence that day only through Jesus Christ, our holy Savior and Lord. Will you repent and believe in Him today? Let's pray. God, we thank You that You are so holy that our sin is obliterated when it comes into contact with You. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your might and power that although You absorbed all of our unholy uncleanness on the cross, You left it behind in the grave conquered forever, sent away as far as the east is from the west. Lord Jesus, we pray, help us to put our lives into action, that we would live according to the plan, that we would seek to obey and follow you in holiness and righteousness and truth. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.